Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Ali Haji, CEO and Director of Ion Energy Limited. The Ion Energy we are talking about today is the lithium exploration company exploring and developing the lithium solars of Mongolia. Ion is in a unique position having the first lithium exploration license in Mongolia, as well as having a unique company ethos and business plan focused on a holistic quality of life improvement and business model. I'm excited to talk about about this today on the show with Ali. So let's get going. Ali, thank you for joining me on the show today. First, did I get your last name correct? Second, please give us an introduction to yourself and a quick introduction to Ion Energy. Joe, thank you for that introduction. And yes, absolutely. Um, the last name is pronounced Haji, so well done you in terms of Ion Energy. Uh, it's a company that I co-founded in August 2017 during a visit to Mongolia. Um, I was there advising another company, Step Gold, through its acquisition from Sentara Gold and uh, ultimately allowing it to trade on the TSX main board and now a gold producer. ION was founded uh, on the basis of the fact that uh, Mongolia is a nation that's a million and a half square kilometers with a population of about three and a half million people. Uh, the country has only been explored uh, for about 3% of the total landmass. So uh, a very, very encouraging sort of uh, nation or, or prospective uh, uh, region for, for mineral resources. And we looked at uh, lithium as an element and said, you know, back in 2017, we're on the tail end of the last cycle or the second cycle. And uh, with most minerals, you, you know, lithium can be cyclical, uh, much like any other element. And we looked at Mongolia as potentially being a region in which we should be able to find uh, lithium. So when we founded the company in 2017, we began a, uh, a research process. Uh, during that research process, we uh, identified a number of regions in country that would be quite promising for us. And in 2019, when the government of Mongolia put up uh, a bid for uh, Bavayol, which is an 81,000 hectare license in Sukhmatar province, uh, we jumped on it uh, and we were granted it. Uh, we were one of four companies that went after it and we were granted it in uh, February of 2019 uh, in Sukhbatar province, 81,000 hectares, uh, our very first sort of asset. The other asset that we have, we, we sort of acquired after we went uh, public and that's Urgat Naran. That's 29,000 hectares in Dorngobi province. And so we currently control about 110,000 hectares uh, in the country of Mongolia. Thank you for that introduction. 
And that's exciting. These are two what sounds like very large prospects and two very large licenses for lithium exploration. Can you give me a little bit more information on where you are today with the exploration process? Are we kind of in the very early stages or are we closer to the end? That's a, that's a great question, but I'd like to, to take a step back here just uh, very quickly. In terms of the, the, the organization and why it came to be, uh, you know, during my visit to Mongolia, my very first visit to Mongolia, uh, we noticed, uh, having visited Ulaanbaatar, that there was a very high level of pollution uh, in country, um, a country that uh, is very much driven by the, the coal-burning infrastructure of the, the last industrial revolution, sort of remnants of um, Russian uh, influence in, in the country. And that prompted us to, to look at um, lithium as a potential to bring the country to a cleaner, greener future. Uh, when, we, when we thought about that and we looked at lithium as a potential, we also partnered with the University of Science, Technology and Country. And uh, the, the goal there was, you know, Mongolia today uh, very rarely, if at all, uh, produces anything. Uh, the vast majority of everything that comes into Mongolia, including, you know, the, the bare necessities like toothpaste, are imported. And so we looked to partner with the University of Science Technology to look for lithium in country that would ultimately allow the country to become a producer of batteries or a refiner of lithium that would ultimately end up in the production cycle and allow Mongolia to, to, to really have a forefront with respect to uh, uh, being a producer of, of an element or, or a product that, that would allow them to, to, to move toward uh, this greener future. Now, with respect to exploration, uh, Baba Yul, is uh, an early stage license, as you pointed out. Um, in 2016, the University of Science and Technology spent a fair bit of time in the southern areas of Mongolia looking for a potential for lithium. They found on Babayol, which is our flagship license, a maximum grade of 811 ppm. And that's quite significant. They drilled two holes, almost 70 kilometers apart, uh, average grade about 423 uh, ppm, which is still commercially viable at today's prices. And yet we took things a step further once we went uh, public on the TSX uh, venture, uh, ticker ION, and on the OTCQB under IONGF in August 2020. We did some geophysics to identify exactly where we would be drilling. Uh, and then we did uh, a number of reverse circulation holes to identify and understand the stratigraphy of the asset. That said, you know, Mongolia is a nation uh, that has not had a lot of experience in the lithium exploration arena. You have uh, LATAM, so Bolivia, Argentina, Chile, you have Australia as being the primary producers of lithium today. It, it suffices to say that the skill set necessary to advance and de-risk lithium assets exists in those countries. For Ion Energy being a first mover in the lithium space in Mongolia, that skill set was not quite there. So we opted to use an auger program on Babayol. We drilled uh, 222 holes across the 81,000 hectare license, covering about 70% of that land uh, area. And that allowed us to get a sense of the anomalies on the ground. Over the course of that exploration project in December of 2021, we identified the White Wolf prospect on Babayol. Uh, and that was at a maximum grade of 1,502 ppm. So almost twice the grade that was seen in historical drilling at Babayol. So very keen, very excited about that. With respect to Urgak Naran, 
it was uh, essentially a greenfield project. Um, it was a project that we went after because we saw that it lo- it was within the parameters that would make it uh, ideally suited to be uh, very similar to a solar or a playa uh, like you would find in the Americas. And so we began an exploration program on Urgak Naran earlier this year that kicked off in March. In April, myself, alongside my technical team, were in country to look at uh, the progress as well as uh, define and, and train uh, the folks on the ground to ensure they're using best practices as they would be used globally. And we've now completed 73 holes on uh, Urgak Naran. Uh, we have also completed uh, over 90 kilometers of uh, geophysics, TEM. And we've seen results close to surface of 918 milligrams per liter. So still very early days, but very highly encouraged uh, by the results that we've seen today. So these are two pretty good prospects from from the way you're describing them. They are, sounds like they can be commercial. And as far as, I, I just want to get a, a reference point on how how large these are compared to some other comparable resources. How do, how do these compare in kind of the grade versus the Solars in South America or, or other lithium deposits? That's a good question. So when we talk about PPM, we're talking about uh, lithium in clay sediments or otherwise rock. And 1,502 equates to about 1.5%. The Green Bushes project in Australia, which is one of the largest producers on the planet today, uh, is about 1.2, 1.4. So we're in and around that range for the hard rock at Bavayo. We have yet to determine what the aquifers uh, will show beneath surface. At Urgak Naran, 918 milligrams per liter on surface is very similar to what we've seen at companies such as Neolithium, which uh, sold to Zijin in uh, uh, December of last year for 960 million Canadians. So that that is a you know essentially a world class result on an asset that is uh, quite significant. When you look at Bavayo at eighty one thousand hectares, that's about five times the size of the city of Vancouver. When you look at Urgak Naran at twenty nine thousand hectares, significant asset in itself. But more importantly, the basin at seventeen thousand hectares is indicative of an asset that could potentially be world class. So we're sitting on two assets today uh, that remain again highly encouraging. And based on the early results that we're seeing, uh, could uh, very closely compare to the assets that we've seen uh, that are deemed world-class around the world. That's great. And I think it's so important to point that out because as we're talking about decarbonization and as we're talking about the lithium that is necessary for EVs and for battery storage, we, we need to ultimately produce this lithium. And one of the easiest ways to reduce the carbon footprint of the lithium and of the batteries is by having one of these high-grade, world-class resources. Absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the fact that they are, um, at the very early days here, um, considered to be world-class results is is highly encouraging. Uh, But let's not forget that uh, from a proximity perspective, where we exist today, um, you know, Mongolia neighbors China. Uh, our assets, our, our Baba Yul asset is 23 kilometers from the Chinese border. And China today imports uh, the vast majority, you know, close to 85% of the world's, uh, uh, 85% of their lithium requirements and uh, produces the vast majority of the world's batteries today. But they, they import that lithium from 
the likes of Australia, the likes of LATAM, the carbon footprint, as you've so rightly pointed out, is humongous relative to an asset that could be brought to production on their doorstep, uh, to say the least. So absolutely, decarbonization has always been part of the ethos of the company. We've always thought to, to reduce uh, the footprint as we look at uh, uh, reducing our impact on the planet. So uh, ION, we believe, can, can help not only disrupt the value supply chain, but it can also greatly reduce the carbon footprint of uh, the electric revolution. Yeah, that another one of those aspects to the the complete life cycle of a of a lithium ion battery is that transport. Do you have any metrics on what the what the CO two footprint say per mile or or what it takes to take a a lithium extracted resource that raw lithium and bring it to China, say from Australia or from South America versus, as you point out, basically across the border, maybe 20, 30 kilometers comparatively to thousands of kilometers? Well, as a company, we have uh, sort of rudimentarily um, looked for that calculation. We've also tried to determine it ourselves. We've looked at uh, a number of different resources to help come up with uh, uh, a number that, that, that we can talk to quite confidently. And we believe that uh, in terms of our carbon footprint relative to Australia, uh, we would be about a third of that. And in terms of uh, anybody that's producing in LATAM, we would be a sixth of that. So a significant reduction in terms of the carbon footprint related to any lithium that's shipped from, from our assets over to China, which uh, it currently consumes at uh, a significant uh, footprint relative to, to to what we can produce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's very clear, and and the even though it's still early stage, that that carbon reduction is important and and measurable. One other aspect to lithium production. So after you have the resource, you have to get that resource out of the ground. I think that's another area where we can have significant savings in this carbon footprint and and overall life cycle assessment of EVs and of batteries. So you've got the high-grade resource, but then actually doing the mining process and extracting and refining that lithium up before battery making. Is there anything that you're working on there that is helping further decarbonization? Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Decarbonization, you know, we're talking about carbon dioxide emissions or, or greenhouse gas emissions is one thing, uh, but let's not forget the hydrogeological uh, aspect of things. So so how are you depleting the water table? And uh, the way ION is looking to, to sort of progress things here is in Sukhbatar province, for instance, uh, where our Babayol flagship license is, um, the largest wind farm in Asia is being built. So we will be using renewable energy to power the process that would essentially extract the lithium to drive this clean energy uh, revolution. So we're checking that box and we're checking in a big way because we're able to use um, essentially energy that is renewable, that does not add to the carbon footprint. Uh, But we're taking things a step further. The remit of the company has never been to to build and, and, and put together evaporation ponds that are used in uh, you know, the vast majority of uh, South America, the Atacama, for instance, um, in, in uh, Chile. Those evaporation ponds, one, are, are extremely capex intensive. Uh, two, 
they tend to disrupt the local ecosystem because you are covering a massive footprint in terms of the evaporation ponds and, and their requirements. Uh, but, but three, with evaporation, you're ultimately allowing the vast majority of the water that exists in the water table today to evaporate into the atmosphere, thereby dropping the, 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 the land in essence and ultimately making it uh, unsuitable for inhabitation in the future. Uh, what we're opting to do and what we've worked with uh, with a number of companies already is we've put uh, non-disclosure agreements in place to look at the potential for direct lithium extraction. What that means is you're allowed to, or you can, you're able to pump up the brine from beneath surface, run it through a DLE plant, ultimately extracting the lithium ions and pumping back into the ground 90 to 95% of the water. That does not impact the water table as significantly as you would imagine. It also does not put this massive footprint in place that would ultimately destroy the ecosystem should a bird or anybody else uh, sort of venture into that pond. Uh, you have a vastly more economical uh, as well as uh, um, viable and, and, and green solution uh, to, to extracting the lithium necessary for us to electrify uh, our transportation needs for the future. That's a fascinating point, utilizing something like direct lithium extraction. It's something that you see taking off in the geothermal realm. A lot of projects in the Salton Sea where people are looking at direct lithium extraction. And my understanding is typically those are, are lower values of, of concentration of mineral. Is this something where, and this may be getting above our skis a bit, but can you, I guess, can you actually extract those high, those high concentrations without, for lack of a better term, gumming up the system? That has uh, yet to be determined. And I think as we've seen the advancements of technology, you look at Thacker Pass in Nevada, uh, Lithium America's project that sits in clay, evaporites and sediments, you, you know. Uh, 10 years ago, if you found lithium uh, in clay, because lithium is vastly abundant, uh, let's not, uh, let's not uh, uh, forget that or, or misstate it. Lithium is vastly abundant in the Earth's atmosphere, but what makes eco economic sense is when you have lithium relative to other impurities uh, at a higher grade or a lower ratio. So if you have high magnesium, potassium, sodium, calcium, and boron ratios uh, relative to lithium, those assets become, uh, you know, extremely more difficult um, to extract the, the lithium from them. But we've seen, you know, a number of organizations that are globally renowned acquire clay-related assets uh, that, that uh, are, are now finding their legs and ultimately that technology will allow them to bring these assets to production. And very similarly, you know, here we are uh, sitting on a podcast. You're, you're in, in, in Texas. I'm over here in Canada. And, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, this would have been a, a very difficult exercise. So technology continues to increase on an exponential uh, basis. And we've seen that time and time again. So with respect to the ultimate uh, DLE technology that would be used to extract lithium irrespective of grade, I believe that we will find solutions because they are technologically driven. And in terms of uh, any reagents necessary uh, for, for that uh, sort of process, those will either be found or we will look for alternative ways for, uh, for this to work. So in my view, I don't think we can bug the system. We've had conversations with the likes of Lilac Solutions all the way down to 
organizations in in Asia uh, that that ultimately would put something that's about 100 140 uh, milligrams per liter through their system all the way up to 1000 milligrams per liter so DLE is not going to bog the system in our view uh, and if there is the odd chance that uh, the system cannot manage it uh, I believe there's there's enough uh, intellectual capacity uh, today to solve that problem in quick order okay I understand and that is a it's a perfectly logical and and reasonable way to think about it because you're absolutely right there. What is going to occur between now and even next year or two or five years from now, we, we don't really know what kind of great advancements will be made in technology. Now, one thing we haven't talked about, we've talked about how you decarbonize all of the process of the lithium extraction starting from the resource all the way through how far away it is from the eventual battery processing facility. But we haven't talked about workforce. And as we talk about the whole ethos of ION, kind of bringing up the quality of life for the entire region and the entire project, I'd like to talk about workforce a little bit. How do you handle workforce in a way that is minimizing that environmental impact while also improving and ensuring a safe, efficient, effective mining operation that helps that community? Fantastic question again. And, uh, you know, a bit, a bit about our history uh, there uh, that I'd like to touch on, Joe, is the fact that we've been in country for over uh, 13 years now. We've uh, had uh, one success with a coal mine, uh, which, you know, speaks... <laughs> Uh, almost inversely to, to, to the prospect of lithium. We've also had a, a gold mine come into production. But the way we operate our companies, and, and just to give you some background on Mongolia, you know, Mongolia, as I mentioned, vastly underexplored, but 20% of their GDP or the country's GDP comes from mining. And as a result of that, you have a lot of skilled labor in country. Uh, that, you know, folks that are educated as far as the Colorado School of Mines. So top-notch folks that work in the mining industry and country. So you don't have to look very far to bring in expensive expats. And bringing in expensive ex expats, as we know, not only uh, erodes shareholder value, uh, but it has a massive carbon footprint associated with it. So ION, in, in the way that we operate today, our VP of exploration is in country. Our uh, uh, exploration strategist or, or hydrogeologist is also in country. They're both Mongolian nationals. They have teams around them that are Mongolian nationals. Uh, we continue to hire folks that are Mongolian nationals. We operate as a Mongolian company listed on the TSX. And in terms of advancing our projects and ultimately bringing in additional skill set, we're also looking to provide scholarships and training to the local communities so that we're not flying in folks from overseas and we're not ship, uh, driving people in from the capital. These are individuals that live in and around the region of our operations. They're being trained, they're being provided with uh, employment opportunities that ultimately affect uh, the local economy. And uh, as a result of that, we're building a massive social license. And we've seen time and time again that this is the best way to do business. And the fact that we have enough skilled labor in country we will continue to look at local skill sets and local uh, labor to help uh, advance our our, our, uh, our projects in country. I think that's such an important thing to point out and to discuss because the the skilled labor and the really 
all of the labor that goes into these mines ultimately helps build out the community, build out additional funding and additional opportunities for that community. What about the rest of Mongolia? How does a lithium project in Mongolia ultimately help build up a successful global win for the country of Mongolia? I think it does it in a couple of ways, um, or you know, maybe a handful of ways, and I might touch on a few of these. I think uh, lithium in Mongolia would allow Mongolia to, to, to really be on the map with respect to a commodity or mineral that, that's in, in high demand today. Uh, and proximity to the market uh, is obviously quite important. But as an organization, as a group, we've continually allowed, uh, I wouldn't say allowed, I'd say we've continually brought in Mongolian investors with us uh, that have, you know, they're, they're not in for uh, a free carry, if you will. They're in because they put in their equity, they put in their cash, and they want to be shareholders. So today, 9% of the company is held by Mongolian nationals. That allows them to profit alongside everybody else that's invested in this, you know, very early stage, high risk opportunity that's now showing fruit or bearing fruit. Uh, and beyond that, I think, you know, you look at uh, the opportunity to list in Mongolia on the Mongolian Stock Exchange, you have the opportunity to bring in additional Mongolians that can ultimately buy the equity and, and, and start to profit alongside uh, this organization. Beyond that, taking things a step further, as we discussed uh, at the onset of this conversation, is, is you know, Mongolia has, has uh, a very low or small uh, production footprint um, in terms of uh, just about everything. So if you start to bring in the fact that uh, there is lithium in country, you have the potential to, to, to either refine to a degree that can be exported for further refinement or ultimately work with the University of Science and Technology to become a battery manufacturer that ships finished product to the markets that require it, uh, this is a massive win for Mongolia and the Mongolian people. And uh, the support that we've seen from the Mongolian people as well as the Mongolian government, I think is indicative of how um, impactful uh, this would be for the country of Mongolia. Yeah, those those points are, are really important to to see and emphasize that it this gives an opportunity for the entire country of Mongolia to buy in. And what I heard you saying is that by finding this world-class resource, by building out the the infrastructure to refine it, to to extract the resource and have it in a state that you can then start producing batteries, maybe that even sparks additional business or additional additional parts of the supply chain to be developed in country since it since you have the resource there and now you've got the skilled labor and you've got the renewable energy it just almost makes sense to continue to build out and complete that vertical all right there precisely so i think it's important to point out and feel free to comment if you want but I, I really like the holistic approach. And this is just something that's, that I'm, I'm seeing and hearing that not only are you improving the standard of living for that local community and then the, the local nation that you're working in, but this is ultimately a global solution because you're creating a lower, well, you are 
producing a lower impact lithium for the rest of the world. So this is this is a way to globally help while making a very significant local impact. No, I think spot on. Um, uh, we we look at this as you know the the, the center of of production today on the planet or, or refinement or, or uh, ultimate uh, manufacturing for for batteries being in China. And if you look at uh, Benchmark Minerals and Simon Moore's and some of the the, the authoritative uh, mines in, in in the space, uh, the West is is being outpaced. Uh, by the East and specifically China in terms of battery production and EV adoption and uh, uh, the electrification of our mobility needs. So um, our proximity to that market allows us to, to, to really press things on and ensure that we're able to, to provide it at, at a lower carbon cost to, to uh, the rest of the planet. And uh, I think we're, we're in a position today to, to, to really allow us to, to, to make an impact globally. And, uh, you know, some may argue that the East versus West uh, sort of debate might exist. I think we have to think of it as humanity. I think we have to think of it as a, a global consumption model. The vast majority of uh, goods and services that we acquire uh, in the West and the rest of the world today end up coming from the East. And if we can make an impact as to how um, that, that, that uh, the, the carbon footprint is affected, uh, then I think we all have a responsibility to do so. Yep. Absolutely. And that's a, a great way to put it. Well, I, I think that's such a, a great way to look at it and, and absolutely a, a great way to really pursue not only business, but the way that we look at the world and looking at that holistic approach. With those thoughts in mind and with what we talked about earlier, where the exploration process is on these two different licenses. What would be next for the for the lithium exploration, and when do you expect to start seeing first production? Well, production I cannot comment on. Uh, I think you know that's at the mercy of the markets. Uh, we start to see, as we are in uh, sort of a state today, uh, a massive liquidity run, uh, lots of inflation around the world. Uh, cash uh, is looking to be king again. Uh, funding uh, the vast majority of operations around the world is quite difficult today, so I will not comment on timing uh, for production. But in terms of exploration, Ion Energy is funded, uh, and, and thankfully so. We don't have to go to the market today to, to try and raise capital. And uh, in terms of the next exploration uh, stages for both our assets, Bob Iol, today we're, we're designing uh, a vastly uh, more intense and, and uh, sort of in, in, intentional, if you will, uh, exploration program that that uh, will include all the hydrogeological uh, sampling methodologies and the lithium drilling techniques that we've seen around the world. So that should be announced in, in, in short order here for Bob Iol. And for Urgat Naren, uh, we're awaiting today the uh, TEM geophysics results from Zonj in, in the U.S., we should receive those by the weekend here, and then we will start to plan our, our deep holes, which are ultimate uh, monitoring wells. When we have our monitoring wells in place, uh, you know, we should be able to complete those by the end of July. We take measurements for uh, August uh, into early September, and then we're in a position to ultimately identify what uh, early resource indication is. 
production, in our view, would be very much dependent on the chemical makeup of uh, the brine in place. And that will only be determined around uh, the end of August, early September. And then as a result of that, we will work with our partners to determine um, ultimately when production can be achieved. So quite early to discuss production, but I think in terms of exploration, a lot of things happening uh, at the company and uh, on the ground level uh, to help better understand our assets. Fair enough. That's a great answer and helpful for understanding. With that, let's transition over into some of the final questions. I ask these to all of my guests. They're a little bit more fun, a little bit more tangential. The first one being, what is a favorite book of yours you've read recently that you would recommend? Well, I wouldn't say I've read it recently. Uh, it's one that I've read uh, time and time again. Um, it's one that uh, really resonates with me because I've seen uh, Robert Friedland speak on multiple occasions and He's one that's quite charismatic and has had a number of successes. And funny enough, Ivanhoe Mining uh, was a company in Mongolia that he founded that ultimately catapulted him to his current success. And that book is uh, The Big Score. I would highly encourage that to our listeners. And uh, I think it gives you a, a perspective that you uh, would not otherwise have uh, expected. And, uh, you know, talking about mining and, and lithium batteries as well, uh, you know, it, it's important to point out uh, that Robert Friedland um, had an apple farm or his uncle had an apple orchard in, in California that uh, Steve Jobs used to visit. And that's why Apple today, as a company, uh, is called Apple. So I would encourage our listeners to, to have a listen or, or, or get it on your audiobook or, or flip the pages the old school way, but uh, a fantastic book. That's a fun anecdote. And always fun to see those ties and where they come out in in all aspects of life. And so that book is definitely going on the reading list. <laughs> the next question, when will we be net zero as a society? That's a, you know, I wish I had a, a crystal orb in front of me. And uh, I, I think, you know, you look at uh, the folks in Davos today and, and what they're saying, you look at some of the, the, uh, uh, additional uh, sort of reading that you can find from from the last five years, including the Paris uh, Accord, 2050 is what we propose. Uh, but uh, despite my belief in humanity, I am a realist, and uh, I don't see 2050 as being achievable. I would be very optimistic that that ha would happen. Uh, my daughter today is uh, 11 months old. She's turning a year old in about three weeks' time here, and I'd love for her to be in a world that is uh, net zero. Uh, but uh, it uh, remains to be seen. I think we have to measure the numbers and, and really get a sense of uh, where we are and what we're doing to, to really hit that target. And, and uh, you know what? I'm going to put that question back on you. So where do you believe or when do you believe we'll be at net zero? I think 2075 is a more realistic number. I think, as you point out, I am optimistic. I think that the technology and the ability to hit 2050 is there. I don't know if the determination and the fortitude and the desire is there yet. So I have a, a three-year-old, he'll be four in a little less than two months. And so I fully agree. I would love for him to grow up in a net zero world, but it is, it is not as clear as as we think. And as you point out, having data 
analyzing the data and making decisions that are data-driven is almost the most important part, especially right now when we have so much going on, so many different opportunities to decrease our our personal carbon footprints, but also as you and Ion are doing, decreasing a significant sector within what is going to be the future of energy. That is an important part too. And we have to be looking and figuring out what's going to have that largest impact. With that, thank you. With that, I I usually let my guest ask me a question. Did you have another question that you wanted to ask me? No, none from me, Joe. I think this has been a, a riveting conversation. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Ali, for joining me today on the show. Before we sign off, do you have anything else you want to say? Just that I think, uh, you know, keep an eye on eye on, keep an eye on, on this podcast. It's been a fantastic conversation. I think, uh, you know, for us as humanity to think about the carbon footprint that we uh, place on the planet, as well as uh, that that we sort of uh, hand down uh, to the future generations uh, remains of importance. Uh, so so let's do what's right for, for our planet, what's right for our offspring. Uh, and let's ensure that we're bringing on mining assets in a way that uh, would be deemed uh, economically or, or environmentally friendly. Uh, last but not least, uh, you know, mining tends to be looked at as, as a dirty word, uh, yet we don't realize just how important mining is on a day-to-day basis. So I would say to our, our listeners, our readers, uh, we should perhaps look at uh, bringing in or, or incorporating uh, mining in the education systems around the world to ensure that we have the best and brightest minds joining what is essentially required for our future. So thank you very much, and I appreciate your time. Yes, thank you for for those wise words there. I think it is absolutely important. Education and understanding where your resources come from. So thank you for those words. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating, leave a review, share this podcast with your friends. Doing these actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. If you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon, mention OGGN, and they will give you a free day pass. If I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.